The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Romans chapter 1. This month I want to explore the gospel. The gospel is, is one of those words that's thrown around a lot. Everyone in this room, I don't even need to ask for raise a hand, anyone to raise their hands. You guys have heard the term gospel. Does anyone maybe though, I will do this, does anyone want to take a stab at what gospel means? Like the word. Good news, right? Good news, I heard it from both, right? So we have, it means good news. So there's, there's some kind of, and here's what's ironic, before we get into Romans 1. Is it's, it's the good news, but when we talk about the gospel a lot, a lot of us growing up, we've heard the gospel in terms of like these kind of points, right? Kind of, kind of spiritual kind of thing. Like the gospel is something that has to do with, you know, the, the, the world is broken, we're sinners, Christ died for sin, and if you have faith in him, you can go to heaven. There's nothing at all false about any of those premises. Like those are true statements, but we're going to see tonight in Romans, and we're actually going to take quite a journey through the scriptures today, is that the gospel is actually, the gospel proper is not just a few points dealing with the sinner, sin, and afterlife and ticket to heaven. Now, those things are true. So no one leave here saying John doesn't believe that there's heaven or doesn't believe that sin. I believe those are true, but I think that we can only appreciate what God has done for us in Christ, right? That's his us, our plight and our afterlife, our need of him, if we really understand the gospel the way the Bible presents it. And so this, this month we're going to explore what, as you guys have seen the graphic, the full gospel, the full gospel. Tonight's message is just titled uh, The Gospel of God. And I'm just using that basically, that's what Paul calls it here in Romans 1. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm, I'm just off my game. Robin is going to do our scripture reading. Okay, so the scripture reading is Romans 1 through 6, and then 16 through 17, if you want to open up to that. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and a set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God, in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So the first thing that we understand here is uh, that the gospel is God's own announcement. The gospel is a good news statement. It is a message. So before we get into these points and what it has to do with salvation and heaven and things like that, we have to understand that the gospel is an announcement. All right, so we have this idea that the gospel is God's own announcement. And this announcement is what it is promised 
beforehand through the prophets. All right, so we must therefore seek to know what God has to say about this matter. If it's God's announcement, if it's God's gospel, we need to know how does he define it? How does God communicate it? What categories does he, does he create? How does he illustrate it? And then understanding that to get, a, you know, understanding first and foremost that it is his. As creator, God has given good news to his people. He's also given good news, though, to his world, to his creation. It is his news. It is his plan. It is his accomplishment. So the gospel, first and foremost, according to Paul here, is God's gospel. His message. His good news. And he promised this good news. This is something that's been promised throughout history since the very beginning. Genesis 3.21. We are going to do a lot of turn in here. But I want to look at Genesis 3 really quick. Genesis 3 is known. If you're new to the faith, Genesis 3 is going to come up a lot because Genesis 3 is the part in the narrative, in the story where we see the world broke. The world is broken, right? The world is in desperate need. Sin has crept into the world in the form of a serpent. That In the narrative, we can see that sin is kind of like the snake. It, it, it creeps in out of nowhere, uninvited, right? Persuades um, lies and all those things. But look, notice this, that they hide from the Lord. In verse 8, they heard the Lord God walking. They heard the sound of him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And this sound, which they've heard before, for some reason, which we know why, because now they are broken, they're in sin, this sound now terrifies them. They hide themselves from God. He finally finds out why they're hiding, not, not that he didn't know. And we have this big narrative of kind of a blame game. Oh, like, well, the woman you made me. Like, it's your fault, God. Like, the woman you made me do it. And then the woman's like, well, no, the serpent, they, you, like, the serpent did it, da, da, da. And so then he goes through and, and, and basically lays out, because of sin, there are curses. There, there's a thing called covenant, where God is king, and he makes a covenant with his people, we see in Genesis and, and at the beginning of creation, where he makes man and woman, and then he says, be fruitful and multiply. This earth is yours in my image. This is your role in it. Basically, reflect me in the world. Rule over it in my stead, as in my character, my beauty, my creativity. This is what it means to be human. And so this covenant was broken. And so with a broken covenant comes curses or consequences for that covenant. And we're not going to get into those. I definitely recommend, if you're not familiar with them, check them out. But notice in verse 20, now after he's given these curses to the man, the woman, and the, and the serpent, these curses. He says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So we see here, it's, it can be very subtle and it can go unnoticed. But we have the first sacrifice. We have the first kind of death because of sin. These skins were made of animals. In a, in a world where we don't see any death really before, we see that God clothed Adam and Eve his own work, his own accomplishment, his gift to them. So we see this promise. And then the promise, I mean, the promise even before that, in verse 15, he tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. My seed will rise up and will crush your head. So there's a promise of a Messiah. There's a promise of a ruler. So I definitely believe Paul has that in mind here when he talks about this promised gospel being spoken of beforehand in the scriptures. But John, he says the prophets. Well, then let's look at Isaiah. Right? So in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, one of my favorite pictures in Isaiah is the idea of this mountain of the Lord, which is above all the other mountains of the world, of the earth. And this mountain, let me just read it here. The word, verse 1, the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Check this out. 
Now it came about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we might walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And look at this. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. The promise in Isaiah 2, this image, is that God is working to bring the nations home. Genesis 3, we see that the nations, that humanity is exiled out of Eden. And we didn't read it, but one of my favorite parts about that story, probably because I'm always a kid, right? I love Star Wars and stuff like that, is that there's an alien, or not alien, sorry, see? Angelic, (laughs) it would be alien to us, an angelic sentinel posted at the garden's entrance with a flaming sword. This is a symbol that you will not pass. You cannot come back. This ain't, you will get cut down. You must continue to go west or continue to go east, right? East of Eden, continue to go out. And we, if you follow the narrative of Scripture, especially Genesis, you see they continue to go farther and farther from Eden and they fall more and more until God looks at the earth and he's sorry they made them. And then we see a flood and we know that story. Right? So this idea of the nations coming back, is we must remember that. And Isaiah 2 wants us to remember that God's plan is to set up his people, Israel, for one purpose. Their purpose is to be the means through which the nations will come back home. This is why Abraham and Sarah were given a son. This is why they were given an inheritance more vast than the stars, more numerous than the grains of sand on the seashore, was so that they can be a people established to be the means through which Irish come home, Africans come home, South Americans come home, whatever. The nations And if you don't believe me, look at Revelation where there's this picture of every tribe and tongue worshiping God and praising him in the last day. All things are made new and the nations are praising him. Why? Because he is king of the nations. He's not concerned with only your heart. I'm sorry, like we got to get off that. But he is king. He is king, and he will not allow this world of his to remain broken. He will not allow his justice to go unanswered. He can't, because he is God. He is good. He is true. The Psalms go on and on about his love of justice. His word is like, a, is like silver refined seven times. He hates The violent man, he silences him all day long. He hears the cries of the oppressed and rises up and goes to action. He is a God who does not tolerate wickedness. But John, he seems to be doing that. This world is messed up. I I watched CNN for 10 minutes and got depressed. This world is broken. Nothing engages and prescribes and understands the evil of this world like the gospel. This gospel knows evil. It understands it, which is why it's the perfect solution. It knows what needs to be done to stop it, to reverse it. 
This is the gospel of God that Paul preaches. And as Paul is arguing, and as I'm repeating him, this is not something I'm making up. This is God's word. This is the gospel that's been promised since the very beginning. Since he clothed that man and woman who used to love him, and now they break his heart by hiding from him. What if your children, who you love, were terrified of you? Matt, you're a big, you're a big guy. Some, guys, some people might find you scary. Not your sons. No. Like, how would that feel? The first heartbreak is in Genesis 3, and it's not ours, it's his. And he clothes, in the midst of that tragedy, in all that pain, he clothes them. Yes, they're exiled, but I guess the point I'm trying to make, according to Isaiah 2, is that exile is temporary. As a matter of fact, the exile itself is the process of making things right again. Let's look at one more scripture. Actually, no, sorry, I lied, two more. Um, Isaiah 51, let's go back to Isaiah Isaiah 51, I'll be, I'll be honest with you, Isaiah 51 is one of those, one of those texts. I'll just read it out loud, and I'll just, I'll just get excited. Um, it's, a, it's a text that just preaches itself. So I want to go ahead and, and read it here. Isaiah 51, and I, one thing to focus on, Isaiah 51, the complete and forever salvation of Yahweh. The complete and forever salvation of the Lord. This life is short, and for God, uh, this, this life is short, Its entire purpose is for God's justice and salvation. Life's purpose is his mission and this vision that he has. There is no life that is exempt from this vocation. There is no life that is exempt from this responsibility. If you are a human being with breath in your lungs, Isaiah 51 wants to exhort you to understand why salvation has come and also promise you that it has come. Listen to me. You who pursue justice, who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste and barren places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden. And her desert, like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of a melody. Pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me. And for my arm they will wait expectantly. Lift your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. The forever and true salvation of the Lord will come to Zion. Notice the, the language used here. This, is, this will probably be in a couple months. If we're doing this, I'll just do a series on this, on this text. Notice the, the language he's using. He's showing that what the Jews in this time, thousands of years ago, hearing this prophecy, reading this prophecy, have one thing in mind. But then when they're reading this, like, wait a minute, that's, that's not what we understand it to mean. Eden now takes on this idea of the whole world. The territory that was promised to Abraham now is no longer boundary markers by by state and by borders. It's the entirety of his creation. It's not just for those who are the sons of ethnically of Abraham. It is for all the peoples who bear the divine image. The call of salvation for all the nations again to return to the Lord to, as Isaiah 2 says, stream up to the mountain and walk in the light of Jacob. Guys, 
I know this isn't the gospel that you're used to hearing. But this is the gospel of God in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel of God. Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is one of my life. Like this is a passage that changed my entire theology. Right. So I'm not saying it'll do that for you. Don't, I'm not saying that. But then my entire theology was changed in 2001 when uh, when I had a, a good brother sitting back there who brought this passage to my attention and really showed me what it meant. And since then, there's been no turning back. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Many will read this verse and just let it pass over. But in light of Genesis 3 that we've looked at, in light of Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 51 and countless other scriptures, the hardest part of preparing this message, guys, was me deciding which text I had to drop for this point, right? We have to keep it moving. But the Bible is so lush and full. This Bible is a big book. It's big because the gospel is big. The gospel is not just a portion of it. The gospel is not just a piece of the Bible. It is the Bible. It is the entirety of God's history and his redemption, his mission, his vision, his love for you, his reckless love for you. That's so popular right now. I love that phrase. His reckless love for you is out of this purpose. Some of you are in here that are part of the guys' Bible study that we go through together. We're going through Ephesians. What's the end game of Ephesians 1? To bring all things together in Christ. All things. He is ruling and reigning. Just real quick. This is in my notes. But Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, and what's his, what's his terrifying message to the kings of the earth who are trying to rebel against him? Listen to this. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Does that sound familiar? Who is the light of Jacob? It is Christ. It is the king established. It is the Messiah that's been promised. As Paul says here in Romans 1, promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures so now we haven't even gotten to what the gospel is but paul wants us to understand that this gospel that he's bringing comes from a very reliable source very reliable source notice that what paul says here through the prophets and the holy scriptures verse three concerning his son concerning his son This is so important. And now we're going to get into the gospel proper. We see here that his son is what? He is born of David, a descendant according to the flesh. That's easy. We don't need to spend a lot of time there. It's amazing. It's a fun thing to do. But we know that Jesus is a king in the line of David, that he comes from that line. He's genetically connected to this king. We know that David's entire purpose for being a king, his rise and, and, and all these things he went through, was to be a type, was to be a sign or a symbol himself of the greater perfect king that would come after him. Solomon writes a psalm. We don't know him a lot for that. But Solomon writes a psalm lamenting the fact that he can't be this perfect king. And then he looks forward to the day that he knows the king that he wishes he could be is going to come and rule his people. This is something that's been going on in the scriptures in Israel for quite some time. He's a descendant of David who was declared, let's see, 
victory over death, who was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus, according to Paul here, is the victor over death. Is the victor over death. The same letter here in Romans 5. In Romans 5, he's going to get into, in Romans 5, chapter, uh, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Check this out. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Right? They, they weren't even alive. They didn't eat of the fruit. Like, but they're still inheriting this. Death is reigning over them. And this Adam, who is the type of him to come. And then we see just shortly after this, Paul is going to talk about the second Adam. The second Adam. Here's a picture in my mind that I always get. This is, this is how I explain this to my, to my son. So bear with me. I'm not insulting your intelligence. I just, it helped me. And, I, and I, my six-year-old get, likes this. There's this idea, I think, in Scripture, this picture of these two warring kingdoms. These kingdoms are at war. Thousands and millions of lives are at stake. It's going to be a bloody bath. It's going to be gory and violent. On both sides, there will be casualties. There will be widows. There will be orphans. But we know this in history, that at times when two will meet, I'm thinking of like uh, Genghis Khan, for example. Genghis Khan and... Sorry, I'm a history nerd. Genghis Khan's brother was trying to take the kingdom. And so they, and he had, his, and he had his army and Genghis had his army and they met and they were about to do this bloody battle. What does Genghis do as a good leader? Now, I'm not saying he's a good guy. I'm just saying, he goes, you know what? Instead of all, all our peoples being slaughtered, you and I will go at it. Winner take all. And obviously Genghis won. He's, he slayed his brother. No one could break it up. It was just them two in this valley below. And then that army put down and surrendered. No one got in trouble. They joined Genghis and they kept it rolling. They kept it moving. And, at this, and there's this understanding is that Jesus alone, Jesus alone as the Israel in person, as the ultimate representative of the human race, as the ultimate God-man would stand before sin and death, before God's greatest enemies and take them on. And there's only room for one victor and the winner would take all. According to Romans 5, there was this idea that sin had its power and its prestige and its control over you because of its secret weapon, uh, death. Death was like the Goliath. No one could beat him. No one could take him. No one can escape him. Paul elsewhere in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. When you were dead in in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. So when you were dead, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of your transgressions, all of your sin. Having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees, the of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Paul is bringing this argument in Colossians that this rebel leader, according to Rome, this, must, this would-be king of the Jews, he was taken and he was crucified like hundreds of other would-be messiahs. Just 50 years after Jesus, there was a would-be Jewish messiah that, in terms of the time, had a more successful movement than Jesus. He had more people following him. He made it up higher politically. He was crucified as well, though. Rome 
one. And the understanding of Rome and the understanding of the Jews was a crucified Messiah was a fake Messiah. A crucified Messiah was a, was a defeated Messiah. And if you're following a crucified Messiah, you were in the wrong movement. Go hide out for a little bit and rethink things. But not so with Jesus. Paul says that the actual death of Jesus was the victory of God. The death of Jesus was the victory of God. All the debt against us, all the hostility against us, death itself was defeated by the cross of Christ. And how so? One thing I I strive to do is I strive to kind of unpack the cliches, right? Oh, glory to God. Well, what's that mean, right? So what does it mean that the death of Christ is the victory of God? And here's just a real quick, ask me later, all right, we're gonna keep it moving. But the death of Jesus was the victory of God and that death was overcome by a sacrifice. The debt spoken of here against us was canceled by his blood. Now, this is not the same thing as the pagan idea of appeasement, that has crept into the church for so long. This idea that God is this angry, wrathful, vengeful God, and he needs a sacrifice to be happy. That is not the God of the scriptures. The Hebrews were not pagans. That's Zeus or Ares or something like that. But what is it? Why sacrifice? Jesus did not die to appease an angry God, but rather to fulfill the justice of that God. It's not an angry God. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't get angry. He doesn't have wrath. That's not what I'm saying. It was the justice of God that was satisfied. God is a just God. He took on death and all the power that it could muster, and he exhausted it. So much so that death itself would die in the death of Jesus. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Paul, I I can see him shouting it as he's writing it in another letter. It's been swallowed up. The victory of God in Christ. The death of Jesus is the death of death. The death of Jesus is the victory of God. So, back to Romans 1. So we see this idea. Let let me, illustration. When a bee stings you, it hurts, right? But who really is the one that's really going to be messed up after that? The bee. The bee dies. The bee dies. And I think of that all the time. Death came against the perfect and holy one came against the Messiah. They met in this battle one-on-one, winner take all. And like a bee, it stung him. Or rather like a serpent, he bit him. He bruised his heel, right? Genesis 3.15. But to him, it was fatal. To the enemy of God, it was fatal. And question, logically, if death is the greatest enemy of God, the great, or the, against God, the greatest power that sin has in this world, and it's been defeated, What's that mean about every other lesser power of sin? It's defeated as well. Winner take all. Winner take all. So my lust and my greed, my envy, right? political tyranny, oppression, real evil, genocide, broken marriages. What can the gospel do for them? The same thing it did to death. It can defeat the evil. It can reconcile relationships. It can bring liberation and healing for who the Son has set free is free indeed. It's free indeed. This idea of the Son of God here in Romans. So we see that he's a descendant of David. He was, uh, resur- by his resurrection of the dead, I kind of skipped something going back to verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God. 
declared to be the Son of God. What does this mean? By his resurrection, Jesus has been declared to be the true Son of God. Son of God is not unique to the New Testament. We see it used in the Psalms. We see it used in the prophets. This idea, David was called a son of the Son of God. Son of God is a messianic kingly term. It can mean God's representative in the world. But I think Paul has a different idea in Romans 1. See, Paul is in chains right now. He's writing, Rome, he's writing Romans as a prisoner of Rome, as a criminal. What was his crime? Well, let's look. I think that the beginning of Romans here is the guilty confession of Paul. He's guilty as charged. And let's see what his crime is. To say that Jesus was Lord in the Roman Empire was to say that Caesar is not. This idea of separation of church and state, this illusion that America believes in, no one else has believed it. The Romans, the pagans, the Christians, the Jews, no one's believed it. We're like new on that illusion. We think if you really look at it, it never really happens. Whatever the law of the land is reveals the God that the society believes in. So we slaughter babies. We do all sorts of things. This nation needs the gospel. That's why we're here tonight. But if there's a Roman coin, like we have a, like a quarter. If someone has a quarter, you see that there's an imprint on it, there's a face on it, there's an eagle on it, there's, there's wording around it, e pluribus unum, all that. Well, the Romans had a coin too, and it was the face of Caesar with an inscription. What do you think the inscription said? I know you know. The Son of God. The Son of God was first used by uh, by Caesar Augustus, after Caesar. Caesar was given this divine thing. This, uh, we see it, it's really fascinating. Emperor worship kind of evolved through, through the years. But Augustus claimed that divine, the divinity of Caesar, right? Julius Caesar. And so he, called, he didn't want to say he was a god, so he said he was the son of God, right? This divinity, this kind of thing. A lot of the official persecutions of Rome in the first couple centuries of the church were because of their refusal to participate in emperor worship. Now, there were other persecutions that weren't official. But when the emperor got ticked off at them and said, you know what, let's hunt down Christians and get them, it's because they refused to participate in the emperor worship cult. They refused to call him the son of God because they already followed a son of God. Paul is in prison for this. He's following a king other than Caesar. Paul is writing this letter in chains for that very reason. He is basically writing his confession. He is accused of being subversive politically. He's accused of following a king other than Caesar, and he's guilty as charged. And he, has no, he not, does, makes no attempts to defend himself or to not, deny those charges. It wasn't a mistaken identity like, oh, Paul, we thought you did this. No. I mean, he's sitting before the magistrates in Acts. We see him telling them straight up to come to Christ. To believe on him, for he rules and he reigns. He wants to appeal even to Caesar, to tell Caesar that as well. This is what the gospel does. Then we see here this idea that this son of God, he was, that Jesus, through his resurrection, his victory over sin and death, that he is the king of the nations, declared to be so through his resurrection. This idea is that the Jewish Messiah is the king of the nations. This is how the Old Testament lays it. This is what the Jews were waiting on. They knew the Messiah would come and therefore take over all the nations. I think we as Christians need to get on board with that. We need to remember how the Bible presents the gospel of Jesus. Now, don't worry. In the following weeks, we're going to talk about us. We're going to talk about what the gospel means for me and for you. But before we know and understand what the gospel means for us, we need to know what the gospel is. It's God's own announcement concerning his unique son, that he is victorious over all of God's enemies, both earthly and spiritual. And now we see that he is, commands fealty, absolute allegiance as a king. He's a good king, but he's a king. He's not a democratically elected president. He doesn't care who votes for him or not. 
He's king. So Paul says this, that through whom we have received grace and apostleship, grace and apostleship, the apostles were charged with passing the teachings of Jesus along. And this, and this was their great commission. If we look real quick at Acts, right, one book before Romans, look at Acts, look at like Jesus says to them, verse 7, it is not for you to know the, the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. They had this great vocation, this commission to go out and be his heralds. In an empire that was supposed to only serve Caesar, they were called to be heralds of King Jesus to the ends of the earth. And then if we follow Acts, the, the structure of Acts is that they're all in Jerusalem. A great persecution breaks out with Stephen in, in 7. And what does that persecution do? That persecution pushes them out a little bit further. And then another persecution happens, pushes them out a little bit further. You ever, th- you ever thrown a rock in a still pond? What happens? Ripple effect. We see that God is using, moving through wicked actions, wicked actions, the, the, the death of Stephen even, to push out... The same exact office was held by Philip. They were the first deacons. Stephen and Philip were both men of faith. They were both men of power. They both had the same message. They both never compromised. Stephen preached the gospel and was stoned. That pushed Philip out to Samaria and what? Plants a church. That's another sermon, but you trust God with the results. You just obey. Believe in his power. Believe in his justice. He will always be there. He will always secure If he calls you home, that's amazing to be with him. It's to be better than being here. But if he calls you to successfully plant a church, then he does that too. And you know what? Forget all that. What about the middle ground? What about as a musician? What about as a computer programmer? Right? What about as an IT specialist? What about as an engineer? The answer is yes. You have a vocation to represent and herald Christ in your work and in your family, in your lives. This is how the kingdom is built. It's not buildings. We thank God for buildings. They're blessings. They're tools. They're not the kingdom. You are the kingdom. You are the living stones. You carry the glory of God in the world. You reflect him in the world. His power and his justice are to flow through you. You are his hands. You are his feet. You are his voice for those who have no voice. You are, the, you are hope for those who are in despair. You are the interposition at times for those who can't defend themselves from powers. Like Daniel, for example, the prophet. If we look in Acts chapter, also chapter 2, notice here in 2.42, 2.42, they, the church, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Simple verse that just shows us that the apostles, this grace and apostleship in Romans 1 that Paul's talking about, is the gospels, why he has his position as an apostle, for what purpose? To pass it on, to pass it on to us. The same message, the same vocation, the same calling, the same commission. And grace, grace is the scandalous idea that anyone can become members of God's community. Anyone can become his ambassador and heralds part of his family, regardless of what they have done or of who they are. There is not a single worldview or idea that promotes that, that holds dear to that. And sadly, that's true for a lot of churches. We think that, oh, I've done, I've done well today. God should bless me for that. The problem is that the covenant, that covenant between God and man has been completely satisfied by Christ. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. Every good and perfect thing you have, it's because he's given it to you. My son sometimes acts up. And sometimes, it's, you know, sometimes it's, it can be pretty bad. And there are times I'm tempted, like, like, uh, like a yogurt mountain kind of thing. Uh, yogurt mountain, and he's just going... now. I'm, before you say, well, John, that's the reason you took him 
even though he was acting up, is because you wanted to go to Yogurt Mountain. And you might be right. But at the same time, I want him to understand, not that I'm going to, not that there's not consequences for his behavior, but times he needs to be shown that no matter what he does, I love him. No matter how bad he acts up, I love him. And he brings me joy. I'm so pleased with him. I'm not always, but I need to be, right? I'm a person, I'm a sinner, I'm broken just like you. But there's this idea that we think that we can earn God's favor. And I know that seems elementary, but man, we do it all the time. Pastors do it all the time. People, deacons, we all do it. There's nothing we can do. We have been given grace and apostleship, or what we could say for us, we've been given grace and the apostles' teaching and commission and vocation in that way for the gospel of God in Christ. For the gospel of God in Christ. The obedience of the nations. He was declared, verse 4, to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations for his name's sake, among whom you also were the called of Jesus Christ, or Jesus King. Remember Isaiah 2. Remember Isaiah 51. Remember Psalm 2. Remember Psalm 22. All the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. This isn't just, this, that's not figurative language. That's a promise. That's God saying, this is my justice on the line. I will do it. God's mission is to bring all nations and peoples back to Eden, back into right relationship and fellowship with him. It is that we do have amazing benefits from this mission and vision of God. We have fellowship. We have authentic worship. We have true delight. We are no longer flopping around like, like, I use all, like a fish out of water. That fish, you can give that fish a million dollars. He just wants to get back in the pond. That's how we are. We have money thrown at us and opportunities or this and that. And we're, we're flapping on the shore and able to breathe because we're not being who we need to be. We're not living who God intended us to live as. His image bearers, his reflection, his people. So we're gasping for air and we're wondering why we're not happy. We're wondering why we're depressed. We're wondering why we can't do things and why all this stuff isn't satisfying me. It's because only God knows what you need. See, the gospel is not just a ticket to heaven. The gospel is an abundant life now. It's freedom now. It's justice now. Right now. Right now. If you don't know Christ... If you have never heard of this justice of God in Christ, if you've never thought about God's gospel being this cosmic thing, and you never understood that you're being invited into it, right now, your life can change. Right now, you can, you can leave, going back to Romans 5, you can leave the dominion of sin, which is now a defeated foe, and be transplanted to the new kingdom of God. You can have a new reality. You can be like like Philemon, who Jesus or who Paul says he can be challenged and changed through the reality of every good thing that God has done in Christ. Every good thing. This is the end game. As king, he cannot permit his world to remain broken or his creatures to remain in exile. Remember, exile is temporary. Remember Psalm 22. All the families, all the nations, all the peoples were turned to God who is creator and king of this world. Thus, all will be put to rights. This is justice. That's the justice of God, the restorative justice of God. This is what Paul means in Romans 3 when he talks about the righteousness of God has been revealed. He's in the world. He's making it new. He's being a good king. He's correcting it. He's making it right. And he does so through his spirit-filled people. Romans 8. 
Souls are saved as a means to this end, the gospel. It's all about God, and it begins and ends with him. The gospel doesn't begin with us. And when we begin with us, even though those are true statements we said in the beginning, we'll miss it. We can live our entire lives going to country club Christianity, checking off our religious box. And yeah, we get to heaven one day, but man, what blessings we're missing. What an honor and a privilege it is to be back in the pond for which you were made, breathing free again, living in the justice of God, being used of him. The gospel doesn't begin with us. It's not about us. We are a part of his plan. We greatly benefit by his good news. Amen? We are saved and we are his through Jesus, but for his glory and for his mission. Whatever we're doing here, which I'm learning more and more every day what that, what that is, that's not changing. Whatever community forms here, we're, we're a community about God's glory and mission in Christ. We will be a people that live, that love the milk of God's word, his salvation in Christ, and then we're going to learn to eat meat. We're going to learn God's law and righteousness, and we're going to live in the liberty and light of Jacob. We're going to see how the gospel can change people's lives, can transform cultures. It's a big vision because God is big. His gospel's big. And I'm tired of being, I'm tired of, I'm tired of thinking small with my faith. I really am. I'm guilty of that. I'm tired of listening to this person and that person. I have good counsel. Don't get me wrong. But man, there's just some naysayers. They've believed the lie of the enlightenment that Christianity is only good for like religious, like religious service and private religious experience. That's a lie. The gospel is for all life. All life. And this month, we will spend the rest of this month unpacking that and exploring that. But tonight, we wanted to look at what is the gospel? What is the gospel of God in Christ? So the gospel of God in Christ is God's own announcement concerning his unique son, that he has defeated all of God's enemies and now rules the nation and commands all to give him allegiance and therefore gives them all life and in life abundantly. You have a mission to reflect this gospel. You, like the apostles, are heralds. This doesn't just mean evangelizing through your words. This means your whole life being set free. There's not a, there, there's not a list of boxes to check. I'm sorry, I can't help you there. People, like, John, what should I do? I don't know. Like, definitely pray. Definitely read the scriptures. Get to know him. I'm still figuring out too, bro. Like, I'm still, this is a lifelong journey, but we can do it together. We are all broken. We are all in need. We are all beneficiaries of this great gospel. And what a great thing it is that we can be a beneficiary of it and still haven't exhausted what it is. Like God has come and saved me. He's called me. He's put me on mission. And I'm still learning what that is. I don't have to pass an exam first to get into the kingdom. And neither do you. We need to get to work. Loving one another. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. Being voices for those who have no voice. Being a hug to those who need a hug, that's all legit. What is God calling you to do and calling you to be? We know that he's calling you to be his image bearer. We know that he's calling you to be his herald. But what's that mean in your life? We as a community can figure that out together. We we can figure that out together. If you have any needs or need any prayer, I'll be up here during closing song. I want to pray over you. We believe in prayer. This church, we will not, guys, please pray with me because there's no way that anything gets done without prayer. I lived in a box for so long. I lived in a Reformed theology box for so long to where I just didn't pray ever. And I was wondering why I was dead inside. Read amazing theology books and didn't have, just have no life change. 
Because God is living and active. He's not a dead book on a shelf. He's here wherever two or three are gathered. He is here in the midst of us. He's working and moving. He's filling. He's empowering. He's challenging. He's here. So if you have a need or a concern, come and see me. I want to pray with you. We'll pray together to the God of all comfort, the God who calls us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.